Automation has been disrupting industry after industry for decades now. You're hearing the sound of what is now an older example, as some robots at a car manufacturing plant hold up panels while other robot arms quickly fasten bolts. All jobs that were once done by people. These days, a new wave of automation has arrived. And this time it's with a technology that's a lot quieter. ChatGPT and other forms of so-called generative AI, they work silently. But these chatbots and image creation software can now do the kind of work that only people used to do. And this time, the industries being disrupted are white-collar jobs. And that causes a complex challenge for educators. Since the kind of jobs being disrupted now are those that require a college degree. Does this mean that what colleges and high schools are teaching is going to need to change? And maybe in a fundamental way? Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge. We're a nonprofit newsroom covering education at all levels. This week, we're diving into how AI might change the world of knowledge work. And to do that, I reached out to a business professor who's long been looking at the impact of automation, including industrial robots. His most recent work looks specifically at what large language models like ChatGPT might do to various industries. That professor is Rob Siemens, a faculty member at New York University's business school. I connected with him recently by Zoom while he was working in his office in Manhattan. We're right here, uh, Greenwich Village area. Washington Square Park is about a block away. Uh, wonderful location. For a study that he co-authored last year, Rob used a sophisticated analysis to try to determine which types of jobs are most at risk of major disruption due to these large language AI models. I started by asking him to quickly describe the methods they used to look at these hundreds of different jobs. So what we did is we focused on um, 10 what we call AI application areas. So this would include things like language modeling, which we'll get into in some detail, speech recognition, image generation, and, and a few others. So, so 10 of these, and these are sort of like big areas where uh, people are taking AI, right, sort of these, these algorithms and sort of applying them to problems in these sort of specific domain areas. So we took these 10 areas and we linked them to 52 different human abilities. Like reasoning and, and that kind of thing, reading, writing. R written comprehension, uh, manual dexterity, spatial orientation, um, th th you know, th th things like this. You broke it down. You broke down what these humans that we are well, do. So, <laughs> so do. we didn't actually break, do that breakdown. So we relied on um, data that gets collected, maintained, updated uh, by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. They have something called ONET. And what they do is they track uh, 800 occupations over time. And, and the mix of occupations changes a little bit over time. But, you know, it's, it's these 800 occupations. And they describe each of these occupations as, you can think of it as like a weighted mix of these 52 abilities. Okay, so, so for example, um, it turns out that, um, uh, you know, certain reasoning skills are really important for CEOs and also really important for orthodontists. Okay, you know, sort of certain cognitive skills. 
Uh, arm hand steadiness, however, which is one of these 52 abilities. So as you might, matter, uh, might imagine, it matters a lot for an orthodontist, right? If someone's working on your teeth, you want them to have good arm hand steadiness. For a CEO, for a CEO, it's zero. Like it just, it doesn't matter if a CEO's hands shake a little bit or violently, it just doesn't matter. Um, so again, just to give you a sense of, uh, you know, you could imagine taking these 52 abilities and sort of weighting them in different ways to sort of describe what's important for a given occupation. So, so again, we take these 10 sort of AI application areas and we map them to these 52 human abilities. And then thanks to this uh, ONET database, we're able to go from these 52 abilities to these 800 occupations and we end up with a score for how exposed an occupation is um, to advances in AI. In fact, you ended up with a kind of ranking or list and there of these hundreds of jobs and occupations as far as how much they're exposed to AI and, you know, even published in the paper, a, a top 20 list or, you know, like a top hundred, um, as well, you can dig in. I, I'm, um, I wanted to read through, um, uh, some of these and, and just kind of just give a flavor for people quickly. Um, if they haven't seen them yet, these are the ones, the most recent list exposed to, to chat GPT type tech. Um, and some of these are, um, wasn't telemarketers on top? Telemarketers is, is the first one, yes. Yeah. And then the next one, the next ones after that, the next few are all teachers. It's English language and literature teachers in college, post-secondary, foreign language and literature teachers. Um, number four is history teachers, post-secondary, law teachers, post-secondary and I'm curious, were you surprised that so many of these were educators? Was I surprised? Uh, I, I, was, I was surprised that there were so many teachers, yeah, in the top 20. I wasn't surprised to see teachers in general there. Um, I, I mean, and again, I, I just I want to highlight again, I, I know you have very carefully used the word exposed, and this is something that I want to come to, or exposure. I just want to make, I, I want to really highlight this for, for your listeners. So what we have come up with is a measure of AI exposure. This is not a measure of AI is going to take your job or anything like that. We can come to that. We can unpack that in a moment. So this is AI exposure. So think of this as like um, if you're in that top 20, chances are that advances in this technology are going to matter a lot for your occupation. Okay, so th think about it that way. Now, we can talk about what that might mean you know, by matter a lot. But we'll matter a lot. Okay, um, and in that sense, uh, it makes it. To me, it makes sense that teachers are there at the top of the list. I mean, when you think about the sort of three things that a teacher does, right? One is sort of uh, gather or think about content that you want to present to students in various ways, shapes, and forms. Second is actually coming up with careful ways to do that presentation to students. And then sort of the third thing is like assess them on what it, the, the, the students assess them on what they have retained and learned or not. And when you think about it, what ChatGPT and other language modelers can do actually can help you with all three of those pieces. And th those are sort of the three pieces of, you know, if you break down what a teacher does, it's those things. Now, th th that's especially the case for sort of college uh, teachers. I think if you move a little bit uh, more towards like high school or let alone elementary school, I think there's like lots and lots more sort of administrative type tasks that become important. Some of which, by the way, I think ChatGPT could probably help a lot with. Uh, but, I, you know, I think it's sort of like a, a much broader range of tasks that, uh, and abilities that are going to matter for um, high school and middle school teachers and things like that. And I do have to ask, you know, I did 
I did note that your own um, field specifically of business teachers, comma, post-secondary, is 22nd on the list. How did it feel to see your own profession and skills among these that are you know, most impacted by these new forms of AI? I told you I was an English major as an undergrad. English, English language and literature teachers, comma, post-secondary is number two on the list. So I'm now a business school professor, number 22. So to the extent that we actually have come up with a list of jobs that are at risk, thank goodness I switched into business administration and away from English. Phew, right? No, but um, again, so I was joking there, right? So again, this is not a list of jobs that are at risk of obsolescence because of chat GPT. From my point of view, it's a list of jobs that are going to uh, start to rely a lot on this new technology. I think that's absolutely true of business school professors. However, business school professors, you know, there's sort of a range of different uh, areas in which business school professors profess, <laughs> if you'll pardon that. You know, so, so, so I te- I, I'm in the uh, Department of Management and Organizations, and I'll, a lot of the classes that I teach are strategy classes, uh, game theory I teach, and things like that. Um, so, so the way that one teaches that is very different than my colleagues in the statistics department teach things, you know, let, let alone the topic. So, so, but we are all sort of bunched together as business school teachers, right? Uh, the way in which things like ChatGPT is going to impact us, I think we'll, w- there'll be some things that are similar, but uh, for sure there'll be things that are, that are going to differ across these areas. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, okay, impact is not always displacement or totally get fired tomorrow or be replaced by a bot. So what what kind of things in teaching and education at the college level um, are you, you know, based on your analysis, are you are you seeing as like things that might, you know, the kind of impact that we might expect? So there's a variety of things. So first, so, so if you want, I mean, let, let me just, I'll speak to this from the point of view of a business school professor. Okay. Um, so I do so, so again, a professor, so at a research university. So I do sort of three main things. One thing is sort of uh, some service-based administrative things. Let's put that aside. Um, another big bucket is teaching. And then another big bucket, really big bucket, is, is research. Um, and so for research, a lot of what I do is um, trying to assess what's already been done, what's already out there. So think of this as like a literature review. Second thing is there's some hypothesis development and things like that and coming up with clever ways to test those hypotheses, gathering data, analyzing data, and writing up results. Um, each one of those pieces, you know, you can imagine chat, chat, we keep saying chat GPT. Of course, there are many other language modelers out there, but you could imagine this new technology helping with. Now, it's different ways in which one might get help, but one of them is um, thinking about all the literature that's been written, like in a certain domain, you could imagine relying on a language modeler, you know, some, some of what language modelers can do to sort of quickly summarize that for me to consume. I still need to consume it. It doesn't mean I, I no longer need to consume it, but I think it makes the job of me sort of wading through all of that and, and sort of figuring out what's been said in the past. I think it makes that job easier. Okay. Uh, second thing would be g- getting data. Th- that actually, I think that these large language models just don't do a good job of that. Like I, I actually have to be the one to go to say the Census Bureau or, or whatnot to sort of get the data that I need to do. Um, there are, I mean, in term, and then in terms of like running analyses and things like that, that, that's relatively straightforward. Language modeler may or may not help me with that. Um, th- there are ways in which it can though, by the way, but in terms of like, for example, translating between uh, the different languages that statistical software uses. Um, so ChatGPT can help with that if that's important for what I'm doing. But now I've got the results. And so the question is like writing up the results. 
And, and it's this writing piece that actually for me, so again, I was, I was, I was an English language major uh, in undergrad. I like writing. Right? To me, writing is fun. That, that's part of what I like as, as my job as a professor is I get to write a lot of stuff in terms of my research articles and things like that. But just like everybody else, when you first start and you're staring at that blank piece of paper, well, nowadays it's not a blank piece of paper. It's a blank, blank screen. Yeah, you've got your cursor blinking. It's hard. It's, it's hard, right? How do you get started? Yeah. And, you know, for me, I often I start often by um, grabbing stuff I've written before and like I might sort of paste it like somewhere. And then I start sort of, you know, saying, okay, this will be intro. And I start sort of creating on this blank canvas that that's my Microsoft Word document. Um, So like what I have found is that ChatGPT can sort of help me get started with this. You know, I I give it some initial ideas. I get spat back like, and and I intentionally am using the word spat, sort of spat back some text. Uh, A lot of it's not very useful. Right. Like I, I like a lot of it's not very useful, but my my it has like sparked something in my brain. I, I would love to hear from a psychologist about what's going on. But there's it's as if it, there's been this little spark in the creative process where I now it like gives me something to react to in, instead of me having to create the thing that I then react to. It gives me something that I can react to. And then that just helps my brain start to function a little bit more. And I start sort of writing, rearranging you know, there's probably some residual stuff from chat GPT that ends up in there. Probably not very much. Um, it's all been reorganized and sort of reordered according to what I want the text to say. And for me, it's been very helpful. So I, so, so again, I view this as a tool that helps me with my job. So me and my profession, coming back to me, number 22, the business school professor, I am exposed to this technology. And by exposed, it means it's a, it's a technology that will impact the way that I do my job. So far, it has impacted me in a really positive way. It has sort of helped my creativity, hasn't necessarily sped up my productivity. There is some evidence in other professions that that happens. But, um, you know, it, it's a tool just like many of the other tools that I use, like Zoom, right? Right now we're on Zoom. We're at my computer. We're connected through the Internet. All of these are tools that help me do my job. And ChatGPT is just one of many, many tools that I use. Well, you, you mentioned yourself and there's plenty of fear out there um, that there could be for a lot of occupations, whether it's in education or some of these many other um, jobs on your list. Because um, I was struck, even if they're not education, the, the many, many of these jobs are the kind of jobs that are college, pre- colleges prepare one for. Like they're, they are, you know, knowledge work that you have to have traditionally a college degree for. And so if there's a, you know, a big loss of jobs or um, as automation is brought to some other industries, that would be very, you know, this one really, it gets at higher ed in a way that previous disruptions with automation haven't. Um, so I guess what, what do you say to that kind of fear that's out there that, that this new language model, um, you know, race and the chat GPTs of the world could really change knowledge work in a way that if it starts to diminish those fields or have less jobs in those areas, that would, that could be a big deal. So starting more, more broadly and and for this, let me like sort of, we'll back way out. You know, we started off talking about the, uh, the research that I've done. So with the most recent research, um, once we'd come up with these uh, sort of updated scores, right. The one, you know, we talked about who's at the top of the list and things like that. So once we came up with these updated scores, 
um, we did a few things with this. So we took these occupations and we matched them to, you know, sort of national uh, statistics um, in terms of like, you know, salary for those occupations, uh, sort of average gender breakdown, uh, you know, race, education, et cetera, you know, but a bunch of sort of demographic characteristics. And, and I think the way that you've characterized this, that it's like knowledge, other people say like white collar work, it sounds right. Like, so, so when you look at the statistics, it's the, it's the, uh, the job or rather the occupations that require the highest amount of education that are the most, that have sort of the highest exposure, according to our measurement. Uh, it's the ones that uh, pay the highest salary that have the highest exposure, according to our measurement, right? And so it's, it is these knowledge workers slash uh, white collar workers that seem to be the most exposed. Um, again, though, it, we don't, like exposure in some cases could mean that, that a job ends up being substituted, right? I, I, you've mentioned substitution, I think, a few times. And I, I, I don't mean, I, I generally tend to be fairly positive about this technology, but, but I don't want to sweep under the rug the fact that, or, or the possibility that there, there could be some jobs that are substituted. My, my general feeling is that for the most part, uh, the technology will be an augmenting technology, much in the way that computers have been, much in the way that the internet has been, uh, you know, technologies like that. They basically augment the work that we do. Well, that's a relief, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, so will there, so now does that mean people will lose their jobs? So while I think for the most part, occupation, like at an occupation level, um, the technology will mostly sort of augment the work that people do. That doesn't mean that you and your occupation are safe, right? I think that there's a, like going to be a whole lot of heterogeneity within an occupation in terms of who benefits and who doesn't. Um, now, I hate to say this, but I think back to my dad uh, in the you know 80s and 90s, uh, like never bothered to learn how to type because he didn't need to. He could write stuff out on a yellow pad like I'm holding up to you, and he would hand it off to somebody who would type the stuff up. He, he still has never learned how to type. It wasn't until probably like 10 years ago that he actually like got online. You, you know, he's, so he's a very, very slow adopter, but I think he was old enough that that didn't affect him in terms of his specific job. Like he was able to retire before he would have become obsolete, right? But he, but like, you know, it, imagine someone who was a decade younger than him, but like didn't learn the new skills, they, they would have been obsolete and they would have lost their job, right? And so I, what I'm trying to suggest here is, you know, that it, it's clear that the technology is coming. It's clear that the technology is going to change jobs and for the most part, sort of augment the jobs that we do. But that doesn't mean you can sit back and relax. It means you need to sort of like lean into the technology and learn how to use it. Uh, be very sort of forward-looking in terms of how it's changing your occupation. Embrace it. D don't be stuck in the past. D don't be stuck sort of doing things the way that you did them in the past. Don't cling to your don't cling to your legal pad and, and pen <laughs> like like yeah like maybe like maybe our parents did or, or like some parents did. That's of, right. of our generation. Um, right. So so that, that that's sort of the, the you want me to start broad and then and then turn to education. So edu education is interesting. So whenever I talk with people at education, they, they, they often bring up stuff like ChatGPT, like we've been talking about. And then they'll also say, and there are all these other issues with education. You know, tuition keeps going up and you need a, a degree. And, 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 and I often hear sort of like a whole long list of like things. And, and then it sort of leads to people saying, and so education is primed for disruption and ChatGPT will disrupt it. Right? And it's like, well, uh, ChatGPT, first of all, there's no question ChatGPT will change education the way we've been talking about. But um, will it disrupt it? Like, I, I don't like, there's so many other things that we're talking about that people 
think are going to lead to a change in our education model or something like that. So it's not clear to me that some of the, that, that it's like the technology might, in other words, it, like 10 years from now, if we see that, or 20 years from now, we see that education happens in a very different way than it did, than it does today. That doesn't mean it's because of chat GPT. It could be because of all of these other things that people like to, like to talk about. I'm very curious, the world of work that colleges prepare so many people for is going to, it seems like it's going to change because of this technology pretty rapidly. Like some are saying more rapidly than the internet changed, you know, things. And and that was pretty dramatic. So what do you recommend? Is there any, you know, what, what could colleges do to respond broadly um, to and or, you know, that, that'd be that's sort of what I'm very curious if you've thought about that. Yeah. Um, so I think there, there are sort of two ways that, that I think about this. And, and let me start. I'll start more broadly before we think about colleges. OK, so um, so, so there's no question that there's going to be like a new set of skills that uh, the workforce needs. Right. Let, let's start with that. Like, I, I think we can all agree with that. Okay? Second statement is we don't quite yet know what those skills are. And I think that that's a very important point. Now, who's going to have the best sense of what these skills are going to be? Like who will have the first sense of it? Is it workers or is it firms? It's going to be the firms. I think that they will have a better sense, right? They're sort of surveying what, what it is that their customers are demanding, thinking about like what types of business processes need to be updated. Things. Like I think they'll have a better sense of the skills that are going to be needed than, than the workers. And so from a policy point of view, the way that um, – this has been typically gets treated in the past is let's give a lot of incentives to workers to get the skills that they need to be the workforce of the future. Okay. Um, I think that that's useful, but I think we also need to be thinking about policies that focus more on, on the businesses, because again, it's I, from my point of view, the businesses that have a better sense of the skills that are needed, right? The big, there's actually a big risk from the point of view of the workers, right? So, Invest in the skills that are going to be needed in the future. So you have to, it's, it's for a job that you don't even know anything about. You have to anticipate the skills that are going to be needed. You're going to have to invest in them. And you, you know what? In some cases, actually, sorry, maybe you invested in the wrong skills. You basically, you made a wrong bet. It might have been a reasonable bet, but you made a wrong bet. You, sorry. You, you resumed up on something that, yeah, you, you've got a skill to put on your resume that nobody ends up wanting or needing exactly, by the time you have it. Exactly. And so now, but who knows who, who has a better sense of these skills? It's actually firms, right? And so I think thinking of, po- like, I do like that we have as a nation sort of policies that sort of focus on investing in the worker, but I think we also need policies that focus on what it is that the firm can do. And so what, what might this look like? You know, it could be, um, I don't like saying like, um, maybe the right way to say it is like tax credits or something like that for firms that invest in training their workers and, 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 and things like that. But basically, ways to come up with incentives that you give to the firm to invest in the worker, training the worker in exactly the skills that you want the worker to have. Um, I think that like thinking more about what those policies are, are going to be important. So that's sort of at a broad sort of thinking about like national federal policy point of view. Now, where do colleges and universities fit in? Um, the way that they could fit it in both of these places, right? So um, you could imagine, in addition to sort of providing the traditional education that we provide, maybe there are certificate programs and things like that. And these could be certificate programs that are designed by working together with the firm to sort of train up their employees. Or it could be certificate programs that you just provide on a one-off basis to uh, workers, 
maybe like mid-career workers that want to switch from one industry to another or something like that. But I think the key thing there is sort of like certificates, like sort of, you know, various ways to provide very specialized training to the worker, either through the firm or directly to the worker. I think also it means that the actual like way that we do education is that it's going to be a lot more around teaching people about how to learn, right, when they're going through high school and college, instead of teaching them very specific skill sets that might become obsolete. And so, again, I, I know you were an English major, as you said, and I, you know, I was an English major as well. Honestly, I think it's those types of, you know, sort of social, you know, sort of social science-y um, <clears throat> type, uh, 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 type of um, uh, degrees and things like that where, where you'll, you'll see a lot more value in those going forward. So what can a college do? It seems like a hard one if the, if the I, I guess you're right about the short-term degree or something instead of retool the entire, you know, master's program or undergraduate um, tech, uh, undergraduate program, I guess, is, is, is what Well, right. I mean, so there, there's like the subject matters, I guess. And maybe you might over time see subject matter be broken up in different ways than, than it currently is. But, but I think a lot of it is just around the, the way that we actually do teaching, right? So, you know, a lot of it is sort of around, you need this skill. Maybe it's like certain statistics or something. So sit in a large lecture room in here. We're going to sort of like pummel you with this skill. We'll test you on it. You'll go home. You'll study, study, study. And you spend hours. And I mean, you know, I have a bunch of degrees. I've spent hours and hours and hours studying lots of stuff. I like... A lot of it I don't really use. I mean, maybe it's somewhere in the back of my brain sort of marinating other stuff. And, you know, I'm sure it's helpful in some way. But I think it's more, you know, so, so I think a lot more thought is going to need to be given to uh, thinking about how we actually teach. And, and for the lesson of the teaching, not to be so much like let's impart this single idea or this single fact, but more about like let, let's try to teach you about how it is to go about learning and teaching yourself and things like that. Critical, right? So how do you teach critical thinking? I, right? I mean, it, it, that's the type of skill that people need. It is, I guess, one of those things where people talk about, you know, whether colleges are good enough at doing that. It, you know, it seems like there's almost like a debate about what higher ed should be for. And if it's for that, are you are, are NYU's of the world and other colleges doing a good enough job? So you asked about NYU. So short answer there is yes, NYU is doing a fantastic job. Thank you for that. <laughs> of um, course. Thank you for that. Um, part, and, and NYU Stern in particular, I, I think, does a good job of this. But part of the way that NYU Stern does this is th th there's a dedicated, it's called the Learning Science Lab within NYU Stern um, that actually works really closely with professors around thinking about the way that the professor wants to be teaching their content. Um, I, I've definitely been able to benefit from that. I, I think a broader question is, you, you know, in general, how might you get something like a learning science lab spread to all universities? There's some universities, of course, that have lots of resources that can do that, but not all universities can. Um, more generally, I, I think that, as we've been talking about, I, I think that the way that we go about teaching, I think right now is ripe for some change. And circling back to what we were talking about with technology, I think that, you know, it's not just the fact that this, like, that technology is changing jobs and whatnot, so we have to maybe learn how to do things differently. But technology can actually help us with the with the way that we uh, teach and the way that we interact with our students and and, and things like that. Um, and, and there's you know there, there are many examples of this. Yeah. Okay. So you 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 have been experimenting yourself in your own yes, teaching. Yes. Yes, I have. For first one, just very quick. I mean, 
no one wants to go back to March of 2020. No one that I know of mm. wants to go back to March of 2020. This is the COVID shutdowns that forced, yeah. Forced us all onto Zoom or, or, or other uh, video conferencing technologies. We are all happy that we are back in person again. Okay. Teaching in person far, you know, far superior to sort of, uh, online teaching. However, there there was one really big benefit, there, there are perhaps multiple benefits, but one very big benefit about um, being able to teach through uh, Zoom. At NYU used Zoom, so I'll just talk about Zoom. Um, and with, with um, what I liked about Zoom was the ability to do these breakout rooms where with like the click of a button, you can assign everybody to these different breakout rooms. And you, I, I would sort of give them something to work on. And suddenly it's like a small group that's working together in a breakout room around a certain problem. And then you can sort of like bring everybody back in. And it's sort of this like, in a classroom setting, you can sort of do stuff like that, but it's like pretty disruptive to get people to stand up, walk around and, and do it. But um, what I liked about it was two things. One is you can do multiple of these and then students interact with different sets of students over the course of a class, which I think is valuable. I mean, I think that that's one of the we're, you know, we've been focused on like the content, if you will, as one of the values of education. But I think there are multiple different sort of ways that education delivers value. One of a second one is sort of the network that you build, and so using this Zoom feature allows you to you know basically create more interactions among students. So so that was good. But then the other thing is that this one thing that I noticed you know when I was you know March of twenty twenty is when the students you know get a chance to do these breakout rooms, it gives them a little bit more of an opportunity to speak up. And then I think that gives them more of an ability to interact and get more out of the class. Right. So that, that was the first example with Zoom. No, that's helpful. And, you know, one of the other things that I, um, I've seen you talk about that I wanted to ask too, is like, you know, what, one of the things that seems to happen is that people are like, ChatGPT is going to change these jobs tomorrow. Um, but how, in your in your research, like how how quickly do you expect some of these changes to come to some of these professions? Yeah, this about? is a great question. Every technology person will tell you like yesterday, right? Um, and the reality is, it's really really slow. I mean, you, you look at the history of techno tech change, and you know you could look at steam, you could look at electricity, you could look at you know computers and internet. It's really, really slow. It takes a long time for the technology, not necessarily for the technology to diffuse. I mean, we know that ChatGPT diffused really, really quickly. So it's not, not just for it to diffuse, but um, for there then to be changes to happen, that, that's the piece that takes a long time. Um, and th there's sort of two reasons for that. One is that we, you know, because the technology is new, we, we don't even quite know the ways in which we want to use it. And so it involves a lot of experimentation. With experimentation, there are a lot of dead ends, right? So there's, it's just very slow going early on while you sort of see what it is that the tech can do well or not. M meanwhile, the tech itself, of course, is changing. And so what, what it can do well or not is also sort of changing over time as well. So, so that's one of them. The, the second is that often, not even often, like in every case, when you have one of these newer, let's call them even, you know, general purpose technologies, you can never just take the technology, then plug it into the existing business processes that you have in place or production processes or manufacturing processes, and then take advantage of it. Instead, there's a sort of a whole bunch of other complementary assets that you have to invest in. Um, and these could be physical assets. So for example, like in a manufacturing setting, if you want to work with a robot, you can't. You cannot pull a human out and stick a robot in. There's a whole bunch of other sort of machinery that you have to invest in 
physical machinery in order to get that robot to integrate with the production system. And, and by the way, that, that other machine, like if the robot costs, say, 50000 that other machinery could be, you know, on the order of like fifty to 150000 I mean, it's, it's not a trivial investment. So, so it could be physical capital, could be human capital, could be sort of digital capital or sort of, you know, software type capital. But it, it's all of these other investments that you have to make. And, and again, j- just like how you don't quite know how you're going to use the technology, all those other what I call complementary assets that you have to invest in, you also don't know what those are ahead of time because, again, you don't quite know how it is that you want to use your technology. So all of this is what doesn't necessarily slow down the adoption of the technology, but really slows down the, the use of the technology. Okay, so historically, we have seen that. There's absolutely no reason why we should expect that ChatGPT will be any different. And indeed, we know that it is, right? So so I guess my, my high, again, I, I hear from like very excited tech people all the time. Well, this time is different. This time is different. Actually, not at all, right? Right. It was like the fastest growing new app of all time, right? And guess what? We're all- Meaning they, they tried, tried it. it. They tried people using People are still it. using it, doing little things here and there. I, I like. I don't think we've seen anything major or disruptive come out of it yet. Now, now we probably will. I hope that we do. But again, like this stuff, you know, it takes a really long time uh, before new technologies sort of have these dramatic changes that I think people are hoping for. I don't. I don't know if you remember. You know, uh, it was it was probably um, uh, uh, twenty eighteen or so. You know, Elon Musk said that. Uh, th- there would be fleets of driverless Teslas everywhere by 2020. And I, d- I don't know where you're sitting, but I'm looking out my window here into the uh, New York City streets, and I just saw a yellow cab go by. It was not a Tesla. I've never seen a driverless Tesla. Sorry, I, I don't mean, you know, it's just, it's really hard to um, get the technology to do what we want it to do. So, sorry, you, you struck a nerve there with that, with that, uh, with that question. Yeah, no, even when... The- even when the changes are positive, as you as you hope they will be in in things like education, um, they don't happen overnight. And then in these other industries that you know require a college degree, it's just unknown because of this. Because there's so much that we haven't figured out about what the killer app, so to That's speak. That's a good term, is, yeah. The killer app um, class of ChatGPT is, yeah. No, um, yeah, I, I think um, I think that there's a lot of you know, the, when you see these lists of occupations back to that though, and it's so many that hadn't been on, on previous lists. I mean, think about manufacturing and yeah, we've seen that over time with robots in manufacturing cars and it's been decades and decades and things changed and jobs definitely got displaced, but definitely changed. It seems like, um, and I guess I wonder if there's anything else that, um, we can all learn from, those earlier, you know, that, you know, kind of manufacturing example, um, as we head into this kind of white collar knowledge work disruption. Yeah. So, um, so, so you mentioned about robots and I know I brought robots up earlier. I, robots is, is something that I, um, uh, study a lot and interesting. So, so, so the, the literature, the, the, at least the, the economics literature on robots and, and what the effects of robots has been on firms, workers, society, and things like that, um, uh, it's, it's a little bit mixed at this point. And it's, I would say it actually doesn't support the conclusion that you, that you said that, you know, that the robots replace workers. So 
Um, while on the manufacturing line, there probably has been some of that. You know, it turns out that uh, at the firm level, it looks like firms that are adopting robots actually see an increase in employment, right? Now, how did, oh, that's interesting. Can you tell me how that breaks, how that plays out in a place? Yep. So, so there's a, so there's, um, and, and so, so that, so th- that's a relatively robust finding, robust in the sense that people have found that pattern across a bunch of different uh, settings, across a, a bunch of different countries. What's harder is we don't actually, um, the data exists, but the research hasn't yet gotten to it. Uh, to, to tell you much about the breakdown of the different types of occupations. There, there's been a little bit, but, but there it's been mixed. There, there are some studies uh, that, that find that there's been a decrease in production workers and an increase in sort of like R&D, sales and marketing, other sort of administrative type um, roles. There's other research that finds that uh, there's actually more workers and sort of fewer middle-level managers and things like that. There's sort of different stories about why this might be happening. Um, one of the interesting, th- but but sort of related to the robots thing, and, and this is sort of the point I was try- trying to uh, get to. Um, there are studies that look at things like the uh, physical and mental health of of production workers uh, as their firm is adopting robots, and it turns out. So if you look in the U.S., it turns out that uh, physical health actually improves. So so robots actually sort of help make manufacturing safer, and there, there are few people getting sick, maybe because they're doing you know less dirty and dangerous jobs, uh, less people with, you know, reporting workplace injuries and things like that. Um, but their mental health starts to drop. Um, and the, the idea is maybe people are worried about their job being taken. You know, they, they see that the robots are coming <laughs> and so they're worried about their job. It, however, in other, uh, countries, right. Other sort of institutional settings, uh, Germany in particular, where a couple of these studies have been done. Again, you see this increase in, uh, physical health, like there are fewer physical injuries and things like that associated with adoption of robot, but, but there's no effect on the, on the mental health. Oh, so it's not necessarily just the robots that are causing this. That, exactly. That's right. So it's like the robot, if you will, the technology intersected with the institutional environment, right? And so, or the policy environment. And so it turns out that, um, you know, worker protection laws are much more robust in Germany than they are in the U.S. And so maybe a firm adopting a robot in Germany, this is speculation, right? But this is sort of cons- what I'm about to say is consistent with what uh, the patterns in the data show. Uh, firms adopting robots in Germany know that they can't easily lay off workers. So they're adopting robots and trying to use them in a way that is augmentative. That's not quite the right word, but I think you know what I'm saying, to the work that a human is doing. Versus in the U.S., where it's much easier to fire a worker, at least in certain industries. And so you could imagine there, uh, maybe the, the owner or the, you know, the, the manager of the firm or, you know, is adopting the robot and thinking, maybe I'll use this to replace a human, right? Because there's nothing to prevent me from doing that, right? So again, it, I, I just want to suggest that it's, it's not just the technology, but the technology intersected with uh, the institutional or the legal or the, um, you know, norms of, of that, of the setting. And so I think that that's um, an important thing. I think that's sort of one of the lessons that we see when we look back at the history of new technologies that I would like us to keep in mind as we think about ChatGPT and the changes that will result. Right? There's not there's there's no so there's not a rule out there that like ChatGPT will disrupt education in this way. Right? It's ChatGPT is it, and it'll be all positive or all negative or whatever. That, exactly, exactly, exactly. Right? It's it's going to depend a lot on the policies that we have in place, the norms, the laws. Uh, etc. And and so, you know, for me, the takeaway from that is hopefully we have uh, laws and policies in place that don't prevent the adoption of the technology, but that protect the worker. 
or as we were saying earlier, sort of incentivize the firm to to come up with ways to invest in the worker. Yeah, and I guess that's where um, that's a pretty pretty big challenge to 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 think about, right? To because we are at a time of of a lot of uncertainty. I, I agree with you on that. I, I, it's a big <laughs> challenge. I, I laid out the challenge. I laid out my, the, the vision. Uh, it's, it's easy to, to think about this stuff and chat about it. Obviously, it's much, much harder to implement it. I guess so. I guess coming back full circle, um, I, you went to Reed College, right? I did. Um, I, I, did. I saw yes, I did. on your resume or LinkedIn. So um, is there um, a... Pr- a professor, like I think I heard you tell a story once. I understand that you had a professor who had a real influence on you at your at your college. Is that right? Yeah, there, there have been many professors along the way that have been inspirational, and actually not even professors, but thinking back towards high uh, grade school. Yeah, and I guess I wonder how. Um, I guess do you do you worry at all about whether these tools, even as you presented positive, you know, examples of how they could be used, could could get a get a get away from some of the human connections that, you know, I think that's the worry of, of when automation comes in and there's in the teaching field, that some of that, some of the magic between the relationships between professor and student could be, could be chipped away at. I, again, here, I think, and there's a theme of, of a lot of what we've been talking about. I, there are ways in which it could, but there are also ways in which it could enhance. Okay. And so here, and so let me, I'll give you this. So, I thought where you were going to go is you're going to ask me. So who was that professor at? You know, and again, there were multiple, but but I'm just going to highlight one professor. Uh, she has retired. Her name is Gail Sherman, uh, English literature professor. Um, quick sort of side story. She was known as being a very tough teacher, and so I I, uh, I was very nervous about taking her class. And her class was Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Very nervous about it but sort of told myself, you know what, like sort of lean into the challenge. So I took the class and I absolutely loved it. And then ended up working with her, uh, writing, uh, writing my senior thesis on the wife of Bath, who is one of the characters in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Now, Gail Sherman, so again, there are many professors that, uh, at Reed that, that um, had an impact on me. But, uh, but I think, uh, let me, I'll tell you just something about Gail Sherman that I think is related to our, our uh, discussion here. Um, so I graduated from Reed in 1996. So I first started taking a class from her in fall of 1994, right? The, the dates here are, are important. And it's Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, okay? She had us do, in addition to sort of weekly written assignments, they had, to, they were due, you know, we, we met once a week, there was a written assignment. It was due maybe five days before the class, so basically two days after the class we had just finished. And it was due... Um, into sort of this sort of repository that she had created online. I, that was, I'm sure that wasn't the term that we use, but it was sort of do. And the idea is that we would then spend the next two days reading each other's sort of short little takes and then typing up responses into basically what was sort of like this little like chat feature, right? So, so my point here is here's someone teaching Chaucer, who's leaning into what at that point in time was cutting edge technology to try to like enhance the way that we go about learning. Right. And so I love that. Like, and, and I, and I, like, I, I hope that me as a professor can like have enough time and interest in my students to invest as much effort into creating those types of things and looking into new technologies and things like that. That would benefit my students, by the way, not, I, I think I highlighted the things that she did that worked 
There were a couple of things she did. I don't quite, but not everything worked. Uh, but again, she was experimental and sort of leaning into the technology. And so I, I would just encourage all professors to do the same, but m more generally, all of us in our occupations, you know, to play around with this technology and to see what types of ways it can help us, how it can augment the work we do and, and things like that. Well, I think we can leave it at that. Thank you so much for taking the time to do Yeah, this. it's been great, Jeff. Thank you. I'm guessing this one might hit home for a lot of listeners. So I'm curious what you think. How should college and schools change what they teach or the way they teach in response to these new AI technologies? If you have a thought you want to share on this, please send me an email or a voice memo to jeff at edsurge.com. That's J-E-F-F -F at edsurge.com. And I might share that on a future episode. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. You can follow us on whatever app you listen with. And please tell a friend about the Ed Surge Podcast so we can continue to grow. This episode was reported and put together by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on X at JR Young or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Editing this episode by Rebecca Koenig and music by Komaku. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening, and good luck adapting to this new AI out there. <laughs>